Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Like John in the book of Revelation and John's Apocalypse, Zechariah, when he has these night visions, has a certain advantage. He doesn't have them by himself. He has a companion. He has a guide who goes with him through the visions. Zechariah refers to his guide as the angel who talked with me. So in addition to all of the things he sees, there's, there's someone walking with him and, and explaining. So, for example, in Zechariah 1.9, when he sees his first vision, Zechariah says, Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. That's the relationship between the two. Zechariah has questions, and the angel gives answers, or he gives interpretations of the visions. And this happens throughout this cycle of eight visions several times. You'll you'll have Zechariah saying, what are these? What are these? And then the angel will have to explain. It gets interesting as we go along, though, when we get to the fifth vision. uh, He says, what are these? What are these? And the angel will be like, are you sure you don't know what these are? Channeling a little bit of that spirit of Jesus we talked about last time, with that expectation that you should understand what you're saying. You shouldn't need this explained. But then the angel does explain as well. The huge advantage to Zechariah, as it was to John, to have this guide, this interpreter who walks along with him, because when it comes to the interpretation of dreams, from the very beginning of human history, going back all the way to the days of Pharaoh, now to the modern world, we place a high value on anyone who can interpret our dreams, who can tell us the meaning of our dreams. In Scripture, the word dreams and the word uh, visions are used kind of interchangeably. So you'll see sometimes these are referred to as dreams that Zechariah has, and he has them at night, so that makes sense. They have a dreamlike quality. They're kind of surreal and exaggerated. And other times they'll be referred to as visions, and the Bible will kind of trade these terms back and forth without distinguishing. But we, I think, need to distinguish a little bit, between visions as they appear here and dreams as we experience them in our everyday life. And we need to distinguish between the two thanks to Sigmund Freud. In 1899, Freud wrote his famous book, The Interpretation of Dreams. And in this book, he popularized this idea that our dreams are an expression of the subconscious, that when we dream Our dreams are like a surreal expression of our subconscious desires, a kind of wish fulfillment. And that's the way we've come to understand dreams. If you think about your own dreams and how you try to make sense of them, we think of dreams as like, I think of it as like a message from the self with a capital S. Like yourself is trying to tell you something in your dreams. For a certain kind of religious person, it is difficult to distinguish between messages from the self and messages from God, so that we easily assume that whatever the self is telling us must be the voice of God in our lives. 
But I want you to understand that the visions that Zechariah has are not an expression of his subconscious. They're not his self talking to him about the anxiety that he feels in a world of returned exiles, the, the, the frustration he feels that the temple that they're building isn't going to be as nice as Solomon's temple, and so he goes to bed and has these sort of dreams working it all out. That's not what's happening here. These visions are an objective message from God. They come from God in the form of visions. This is revelation. This is God speaking to and through Zechariah in the form of the genre of vision. In the same way that God spoke through Haggai in the form of oracle. Now, we understand a prophetic word like Haggai's much more easily than we do Zechariah's. If you remember last week, Haggai's oracles, they're kind of like sermons. Right, the people get together and Haggai gives them a little speech about what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing, what their hope should be, that sort of thing. That's intelligible to us. But when you suddenly encounter visions, you have to wonder what's going on. Like, why would God, who surely must value clarity and intelligibility, why would God speak to us in this way? Why would he use visions to communicate? It's interesting, the prophetic word, the oracle, is often designed to call people to repentance. But an apocalyptic vision like Zechariah has or like John has is actually given to us so that we might have hope. I know that may sound surprising. You're like, wait, the book of Revelation was given to us so that we might have hope? It's not meant to terrify us and keep little children up at night? No. It was given to us, as these visions were, so that we might have hope. And a lot of the things that terrify us in these apocalyptic visions are simply what justice looks like from the perspective of the unjust. But from the God's eye view, what happens in the Revelation is a reason for hope. But why communicate it this way? Why do it in vision? The poet Mark Jarman, kind of explaining the the value of poetry and metaphor, said that metaphor, and, and poetic metaphor in particular, is a way of expressing truth that simply can't be gotten at in any other way. Like there are things that are true that we can't approach scientifically, that we can't approach analytically, but it doesn't make them false. Sometimes this is a means, the only means, by which we can get to those things. I think there's something similar working here. That as God is revealing his plan for the future through a glass darkly, there are some things that can only be communicated, that can only be conveyed through visions. And that's why God speaks to us this way. One commentator said, these visions give a heavenly perspective of earthly events. We begin to see what's happening all around us, not from the subjective perspective of our own hopes and fears, but to see them from a heavenly perspective. So as we look over the next few weeks at the visions individually, we're going to be studying those details. But for now, I want to give you the big picture. I want to look at all of the visions and try to understand what they have in common with one another, how they relate to one another. And then I want to ask the question, what do these visions point to? What do they point to? And also, 
why is it that God no longer speaks to us this way? Why are we no longer receiving this kind of revelation? So let's start with the visions themselves. There are eight visions of Zechariah. We want to look at those and how they relate to one another. So as you can see in your chart, there is a certain relationship between the individual visions. Now, they come in the course of a single night. Remember the date. This is February 15th, 519 B.C., the 11th month in the second year of Darius. They all happen in the same night, and because of that, you want to think of them as a set. Like they go together, and they complement one another somehow. Now, the entire book of Zechariah has a kind of structure to it. You can uh, look at its structure, and you can kind of diagram it different ways, but, but a good way to think about it is in the whole book, you've got like three parts, and each part has a certain hinge or a center point. And what we're looking at is the first part, and the, the hinge or the center point that comes here is going to come to us in the fourth Vision. When we get to the fourth vision, that's where we reach kind of the center of this structure. There's a term that scholars use to describe this kind of structure. It's chiastic, or sometimes you'll hear it pronounced chiastic. But basically, it just means like walking into something and then walking back out of it. There's a kind of going in and a going out structure to this. And that's what the diagram suggests. If you look at the diagram, you could kind of visualize it as we're building a structure, we're building a temple, if you will. And we're going to start at the bottom and we're going to work our way up. And we'll get to the pinnacle and then we'll work down the other side. The problem with that metaphor, as I say it out loud, is that you don't build, you know, pyramids one side at a time or they collapse. So instead of thinking of it as building up, let's think of it as uh, traveling on a horizontal plane. Like we're on a journey, and we begin on the outside, and we work our way in. So if you'll bear with me, kind of looking at this chart, we're going to start all the way over here in vision one, outside the land. We're out in the nations. And in vision two, we're going to take a step closer inside, as it were, outside the walls of the city. And in the third vision, we're going to go inside the city. Now we're here in Jerusalem, and then in the fourth vision, we're going to step inside the temple into the Holy of Holies. Once we've done that, we're going to make the same journey back out until in the eighth vision, we find ourselves back out among the nations. And you'll see that there's a kind of unity, a full circle to these relationships. And what that means is each journey, the journey in and the journey out, each step is related to the corresponding step on the other side. So the first vision and the eighth vision parallel one another. The second and the seventh parallel one another. The third and the sixth, and then the fourth and the fifth. And as we look at them, you'll see some of these parallels are really obvious. The first and the eighth, you have four horsemen, then you have four chariots, and they're basically doing the exact same thing. That's easy. Some of them, the parallels will be more subtle, but as we discuss them, you'll see that they are related to one another. They go together. So let's look at those visions, starting with number one and then going through number eight. So the first vision is the vision of the four horsemen. That's in chapter one. It starts in verse eight and goes through verse 17. 
So there are four horsemen, and the task of these horsemen, they're scouts. They're sent out to the four corners of the earth to basically see what's going on in the world. And they come back and they report that the nations are at rest, that there is rest in the world. Now, in this vision, we're introduced to some characters that are important as we go on. I already mentioned one, the guide angel, the angel who talked with me, who is the companion. But there's another angel who is seen in the midst of these myrtle trees in this vision. And he's referred to as the angel of the Lord, to be more precise, the angel of Yahweh. And as we'll see, he is a pre-incarnate Christ. He's like Jesus before Jesus took on flesh and dwelled among us. And so as we see him acting in the visions, we'll see what he does is Jesus-y stuff in an interesting way that, that occasionally, I hope, will give you goosebumps. Now, in this vision, the angel of Yahweh, the, the, the Christ pre-incarnate, cries out to Yahweh, cries out to God the Father and says, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? The horsemen report the world is at rest. That sounds like good news, but it's not. Because what it means is that the injustice perpetrated against Jerusalem has gone unanswered. And so this is a cry that that God will do something. And Yahweh declares that he will, that he will return to Jerusalem and that the rest of the nations is over. It's done. In a, a story, this is your inciting incident. Everything is fine, and then something happens that says, oh, good, there's going to be conflict. And this is the best kind, the conflict that God brings when he does justice. But this flows immediately into a second vision, and again, we have four and four. We have four horns, and we have four craftsmen. So the second vision goes from verses 18 through 21. It finishes out chapter 1. Now, a horn symbolizes strength. You know, you think of like the, the, the ram or the bull, bull, yeah, who has horns. That symbolizes strength. And so whenever you see horns referred to here or in the book of Revelation, we're talking about strong powers or nations. So these are the four nations that have defeated, overcome Israel, Judah. And in this vision, they are set upon by four craftsmen. We read in Verse 21, and I said, what are these coming to do? This is an example of the dialogue where an explanation is given. He said, the angel who talked with me said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. I love this. We'll get into it more later on. But, but to undermine the strength of these nations, God sends out craftsmen. He sends out workmen to kind of work from within and undermine their strength. This is a kind of judgment from within that should remind you of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's idea of the self-defeating nature of evil. Evil turns upon itself and destroys itself. In the third vision, remember, we're stepping closer in, and now we've stepped inside the precincts of the city. In the third vision, we're in Jerusalem. And there's a man in Jerusalem, and he's got a measuring line, and he's measuring out the city. He's seeing the size of it, and, and essentially he's doing this to make sure it's big enough because an angel comes and declares that the city is going to be packed, that God is going to bring people in 
from all over the place and pack the city full. In chapter 2, verse 10, we read, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. God is going to dwell in the city with his people, and his people are going to be called from all over the place. Yahweh will come, and many nations shall join themselves to him, the prophet says, and be his people. That's the third vision, a vision of the new Jerusalem where the nations come in and become the people of God. And then in the fourth vision, we step into the temple itself. In the fourth vision, this is an interesting one. The high priest Joshua, who's a real person that we've mentioned. Remember Joshua and Zerubbabel? This guy Joshua appears in the vision. He's the high priest, but he's dressed here in filthy garments. He's in the presence of God, and Satan is there too, and Satan accuses him because look at the filthiness, the corruption. But then Yahweh, the Lord, the Father, rebukes Satan. And then the angel of Yahweh, who is the figure of Christ, removes the filthy garments from off Joshua. And he says, I'm taking your iniquity away and giving you pure vestments. Now, this is the moment that I alluded to last time. This is the vision where a messianic prophecy is revealed in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch that branch from the root of Jesse. So Yahweh is promising to send the branch, and he says the branch, this Messiah will remove the iniquity of his land in a single day. In the fifth vision, we remain in place. We're still inside the temple in this Holy of Holies. Zechariah sees a golden lampstand. On this lampstand, there are seven lamps. So you should be thinking in your mind, a menorah is being pictured here. It's flanked by two olive trees, and the angel interprets the meaning of those symbols to Zechariah. But what's interesting here is that Yahweh speaks, and Joshua was the focal point of the fourth vision, but in the fifth vision, it's Zerubbabel, the governor. Now he's being addressed, the one that in Haggai, we were told, remember, would be the signet ring, the chosen one. And now Zerubbabel, is addressed in verse 6. We read, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. Zerubbabel is told that the, the mountains will flatten, that he will carry the top stone, and that as he carries the stone forward, there will be shouts. And what the people shout is grace, grace to it. So as this stone, you might be thinking cornerstone, is being carried forward, so a foundation might be laid, the cry as it goes forward is grace, grace to it. That's the work that this king is called to. Zechariah 4.10, we read, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The day of small things is the day they live in where things seem not as glorious as they were, where the work that we do doesn't seem to accomplish any of the great things that we aspire to, but do not despise 
these days of small things, we're told, because great things will come, and in a direct line from what is happening right now. In the fifth vision, which is in chapter 5, there's a flying scroll, and the scroll carries a curse on all theft and falsehood. In Zechariah 5.3, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. Those who do these things, the thieves, the liars, will be consumed, signifying that the land that this scroll flies over it will be a land of righteousness. And then the seventh vision, which is probably the strangest, there is a basket, and inside the basket there is a woman. And the angel says that this woman is wickedness. This is wickedness, he says. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And then the basket is taken by two other women who are winged, and they carry the basket to Shinar. We're told Shinar, the land of Shinar, is where the Tower of Babel was constructed in Genesis chapter 11. So there's a temple of wickedness that's also being built out there. And wickedness is being carried away to it once it is prepared. In the final vision, the eighth vision, there are four chariots. And these chariots emerge from between two bronze mountains. And the charioteers are impatient. They want to go out and scout the earth and see what's going on. Like now that all this stuff has happened, we want to take a look at at the results. And so they go out and they come back and they report that Yahweh's spirit is at rest in the north. Where all the enemies came down from to conquer Judah, now there is rest. And it's not the kind of rest that there was in the first vision. This is the rest of the world set right. This is the rest of God's judgments executed. These are the visions of Zechariah one by one. They all go together. They all point to something, a a work of redemptive history. You can really see their object when you focus on on just visions four and five, the two that happen inside the temple or behind the veil, as it were. They're set in the presence of God, which we know from the author of Hebrews is the true temple, not the one that was built by hands by Solomon. Really what happens in those visions is just another version of what the author of Hebrews describes in Hebrews chapter 9. If you look at Hebrews chapter 9, You read these words, starting in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Christ is the priest who sacrifices himself upon the real altar in the presence of God. This act of redemption is once and for all. Later on in Hebrews chapter 9, he adds, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. These people who are building a copy of the temple that had gone before are now being pointed to something that will happen in a temple not made by human hands, not a copy of anything, but the original an actual temple. Unlike a high priest, he won't offer sacrifices over and over and over again every year. Instead, Christ will do this once for all in a day. As Zechariah is told, I will remove their iniquity from them. 
So, the object here is clearly the work of Christ. It is clearly the, the, the plan of redemption that comes in Jesus. But there is an interesting development in these visions. As you know, God reveals himself progressively. right? So if you start in Genesis and you keep reading, you're getting more and more, like more and more of the mystery is being revealed. God is showing his hand more and more. And here, he shows his hand. He brings something important into focus. Now, the prophets of old already had these pieces. Right? As we've said, they already talked about the branch. Jeremiah, Isaiah, they talked about the branch that would come, the Messiah from the root of Jesse. That had already been pictured. And we see Zerubbabel here as the type. He's the symbol of that branch. They also already had an idea of a priest who would sacrifice himself, of a suffering servant, as Isaiah uh, prophesies about, here pictured by Joshua, the high priest. But what happens here is that these two things, which had been distinct, these two offices, king and priest, suddenly we we come to realize they are the same person. That we're not looking for two. We're not looking for a king and a priest. We are looking for a king who is a priest and a priest who is a king. That these two in the form of the Messiah will be one. That they will perform all of the work. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the king who is the priest who offered himself up. And his person and his work are the object of these visions. His person in showing us who he has to be and also his work in showing us all the effects of what it means for God in the flesh to come and dwell with us, of what it means for us and what it means for the nations, what it means for the world. All of that revealed in these visions through a glass darkly. As we look at this, we can sometimes scratch our heads and ask how are we supposed to interpret this because... Spoiler alert, although the angel interprets things, you will find there are still some questions in your mind about what everything means. How do we interpret it? I want to talk about how not to interpret it. Because I think interpretation of dreams, interpretation of visions, is one of those things we do very poorly, which is ironic considering how much time we devote to it. I often tell the story of of growing up in church and having a Sunday school teacher explaining the book of Revelation to the class, and, and the phrase that stuck in my mind, and those of you who grew up in, in that kind of environment might, might know exactly what I'm talking about, but he said, the locusts are literally helicopters. The locusts are literally helicopters. I knew, in my small mind, he was misusing the word literal. Because what he meant was the locusts were symbolically helicopters because the locusts were literally locusts. Right, they were locusts, but he was doing what we often do when we attempt to interpret visions like this. It's the reason why there's so much bad interpretation out there. So, so, so one thing, like, don't assume that these visions are modern pictures revealed to ancient people who simply were too stupid or uninformed to know what they were seeing. And so they had to describe it in their own primitive language, and that's why some of them seem so strange. That's not what's going on here, because these are visions from God recorded in a book that is from God. The visions are verbally inspired. 
These are not human approximations of the revelation. These are the revelation. So when we interpret it in that way, I think we diminish the significance of the words themselves. Also, don't think of these visions as simple allegories where everything stands for something else. And if we can just figure out what, what each symbol stands for, then it's like a, a simple substitution code. You know, A stands for B, that sort of thing. So if you just replace every symbol with what it stands for, then the true message will come out. Because you'll find it is impossible to crack the code. That these visions don't work that way. They're not just encoded things. The, 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 the images communicate in a different way than the words do. So there are things there as we look at them that we're going to look at and we're going to say, I'm not exactly sure. And the whole history of this interpretation, if you've ever read a commentary on Revelation or on Zechariah, you'll find there's a lot of speculation about what these things mean. Some of it is pretty good, some of it not so much. What you need to understand, though, is that just because we don't have every single detail pinned down, that doesn't mean that we don't understand what the vision is about. We don't have to understand each and every symbol in order to see the big picture of what's being portrayed to us. In fact, sometimes it helps not to try to pin down every detail, but to kind of step back and see the large outline of what's happening. So that you can see, okay, I'm not sure how this part and this part work, but the big picture is clearly a priest whose filthy garments are being replaced by pure vestments, and it's happening by the one who is the, the symbol of Christ. That says something, even if we can't explain why he has a turban or what, that sort of thing. You get the idea. Last thing. Why doesn't God still do this? Why doesn't God still speak to us this way? Why isn't he still giving us these prophetic visions and dreams? It might sound strange to you that I'm even saying that he doesn't. Because your social media feeds are full of people who claim to be prophets from God, who are receiving visions and words from God to this day. So what do I mean when I say that God no longer speaks to us this way? Am I not guilty of putting God in a box? Can't God still do what he did in the days of Zechariah? So what you need to understand is this. The mode of revelation is connected to the message of revelation. The way that God revealed himself in Scripture, there was a reason to it. There was a message that was being conveyed. It wasn't just all signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders. It wasn't that in the Old Testament they lived in kind of magical times or something like that. This was deliberate on the part of God. He did what he did in this way for a reason Prophetic activity wasn't constant throughout Scripture. Like, we've seen this already. Haggai and Zechariah began to speak after a period of silence. Right? This is something special that God is doing. That's true for uh, miracles in the New Testament. It's true for prophecy in the Old. These, these acts correspond to what you might think of as like new chapters of revelation, new layers of things being revealed. But once you reach the center, once you reach the thing that you've been building up to all this time, 
there is nowhere else to go. Once we arrive at Christ, the object of revelation has reached its, its fullness. Christ is what it was all about. Christ is who the Bible is all about. And in Christ, the activity of revelation finds its completeness. The canon of Scripture is complete. We're not still getting extra books that you have to photocopy and punch and put in the back of your Bible. It's done. It's done because what it was all about has arrived in the form of Jesus Christ. And those who do keep adding to it are undermining the fullness of that revelation of Jesus Christ. Once Christ is here, the Spirit is still at work. The Spirit is more at work than ever, but it is working differently than in times past. It is the Holy Spirit who shines light on the darkness. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates. We talk about the inspiration of Scripture, the way the Spirit inspired the human authors, and the result was the Word of God. Now, the Spirit takes that revelation and illuminates it to us shines light on it so that we can understand. And indeed, the Spirit quickens us and brings us to Him. The Spirit shines light on the visions, but the visions themselves are complete, intact, and whole. All that we need is revealed to us. And that's why God isn't continuing to give His hot takes on whatever happens in the world today or tomorrow. He's already given his take on all of human history, and it's here in Scripture. My prayer for you is that the Spirit will stir you and shine light in your darkness and give you the rest that is prophesied for all those whose Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. And as we meditate on these visions, I pray that the Spirit would draw us into an understanding of what those visions, who those visions are all about. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.